remember there a few weeks ago when we were all panicked and worried about the state of rugby and if England were going to win the World Cup and would Ireland ever recover from a shellacking to the All Blacks and a defeat to Japan in the World Cup? And now we're back to, you know, Leinster winning matches routinely, Ulster getting dramatic last-minute wins and, you know, beating French teams where Connacht's footing up the fight of their lives and, you know, Munster possibly in a little bit of trouble but ultimately giving you a seat at the pants Tome and Park performances and you're just thinking, everything is the same. And nothing has really changed. You're very welcome to World and Union, Balls.E's weekly rugby podcast with me, Mick McCarthy, alongside Morris Brosnan. Morris, we're back from a, a, a very, very short and slight hiatus, and we're on a weird day of the week here. We're going to look back um, at a couple of weeks of Champions Cup and a bit of nor- normalcy returning to the world of rugby. And But just to let people know before we do start that we will be back with you every Tuesday from then on. We're going to go Tuesday afternoon in your feeds by 3, 4 o'clock. There will be a new World Union show and you can listen to it all week in the build up to the games at that weekend so just want to put that to bed there is no we've been getting letters Morris actual <laughs> letters with stamps on them wondering where World and Union has gone yeah and that's why you opened with a, a philosophy monologue there because people are kind of pondering their very state of existence without World and Union but by their sides <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> but we are back as I said we will talk about those last couple of weeks and just how kind of mad and yet expected and normal they've all been we'll also talk about whether the heineken champions cup as it's now called is in fact the beast it used to be whether it is sustainable whether claremont sending a second team uh, or well maybe a weakened team to belfast in round two of the tournament is a sign that things are not all rosy in the heineken champions cup garden um, morris is going to speak to ali stokes who's a freelance rugby writer uh, people will know he writes a lot of stuff for the rugby mag um so we're going to talk a little bit about that and whether or not, you know, things are, you know, going to be okay, I suppose, because you mentioned it actually in a conversation we had with Stephen Ferris a couple of weeks ago that, you know, the Irish teams, it's always been a little bit this way, but even more so now, it seems like that this is the be all and end all for Irish teams. It doesn't seem to be the be all and end all for anyone else. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny you say that, right? Because at the time I've done a 180, my thinking has totally changed on that interestingly enough right so at, at the time i was kind of thinking it doesn't really matter to anybody outside of irish teams but it also it doesn't that the fact that that is the case doesn't really matter like if irish teams treat it as seriously we can still get as much out of us and now i kind of think that it is like you don't want to overreact to what happened last weekend but i do think the competition has kind of is developing a credibility problem and i think the i mean like it, we can talk about it um I don't really want to, but the <laughs> Claremont epitomised that for me. Like that, the game was just so. And the, my actually biggest problem, Mick, is like I know you were saying that there, it was like whatever about maybe their selection, like w- whether or not it was weakened. Yeah. My problem was seeing really good players, and not even, like really really good players. I, I, you can make so many excuses for like lack of technical ability or like you know lack of luck or anything of that. Like really kind of sort of stuff, but. Lack of effort is yeah. so glaring in a scenario like that. And, and some of it was... intensity and everything that goes with a good big rugby performance in such a physical sport. Like And you mentioned, and like, I'm absolutely biased. We have him on another show. I'm I absolutely biased. I'm like full cards and tail. But Stephen Ferris is brilliant on punditry. He is absolutely brilliant. And he was on for this game on... And the reason that I like Ferris so much is because he calls it exactly as he sees it. So, for example, like he was kind of unrelenting and really critical of Claremont fully deservedly like uh, uh, to, I think he actually described like it as, a, as an embarrassment which yeah. was, was was totally fair but at the same time I mean like you could he's 
commenting on a, a former team of his, but he was also like absolutely upfront to the, where after that Will Allison tackle, which he this week has been uh, handed a four weeks uh, ban, mm. he was totally upfront that that tackle is not okay anymore. Like they, they they have to do something about that. So like I, I just think Ferris is brilliant, but his criticism of like he's somebody who kind of recognizes lack of of effort, you know, like lack of work rate. And so when it's a, a former pro kind of calling out for what it is, I think it's it carries a bit more weight. And it was just so glaring, like it's so frustrating that, you know, the, the, the really sort of stuff like the failure to secure that kickoff when the, at the very start of the game, Yato's first penalty where he just blazes in from the side kind of ridiculously, like mm. stuff like that, I find it really kind of frustrating to watch. And yeah. The thing is, it's not actually that isolated. Like we, you, you might think it is, but it's not really. Like the, we, we've seen, so what, well, Rochelle this week was as another case in point. You've seen outside of Saracens, generally the English teams have no like, the, no sustained. Now maybe extra will prove us wrong after their start now, this year. They go in in bursts. And exactly. It depends yeah. on the season. It depends on their own situation. And like you look at, it's not a hundred percent either because you look at the performance that Racing did put in at Thomond Park this week, and it was outstanding. And I think Rassinger, by that performance, I would judge to say that they're determined to win the Champions Cup this year. However, I think the overall point is that we shouldn't have to judge by what their performance was like in Thoman Park to know whether they want to win the Champions Cup this year. You know, it's a tournament that they're in. It should be the pinnacle of the game. And like, while I do still think it is serious, and I still think it's an incredible achievement if any Irish team wins it, because I think once you get to knockout stages... I did a big piece, actually, on um, after the World Cup on the kind of like the basic the, the misconception almost that Irish players don't play enough minutes rugby played, yeah. enough minutes and compared them to what the English had done in 2019 and one thing I did notice what I was looking at the English minutes was for Saracens and for other teams that made it into the latter stages of European rugby including the Challenge Cup they played very 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 few premiership minutes after Christmas so once you do get to a stage it becomes the be all and end all, but unfortunately, at this time of year, that's just not the case. Yeah, and like, and and then therefore, the best teams probably aren't qualifying and getting to that stage. And we'll talk to Ali about this more and kind of elaborate on this later. But the reason that I like Ali is actually an interesting case study. Like, there's there, a certain cohort who would kind of point the finger at, oh, well, there's Pro 14 is way softer and kind of like it's kind of always outwardly. And the reason I like Ali is because he's kind of he is a, like a very good journalist, but he's also very kind of like. Uh, self-critical of the development of English rugby and the way that they're like their short-termism and the way that, that the consequences that has for tournaments like the Champions Cup and that it's just never going to be a priority while English rugby is structured the way that that it is and it kind of can't be yeah. and that you know we talk about solutions maybe there isn't a solution we'll elaborate on that later but maybe it's just kind of it's more the solution is acceptance you know what I mean um, that you kind of come to that reality but I do feel like this year particularly given Saracen's question marks over there commitment Rassing who look now look like they're going to be in a relegation dogfight like it'll be very interesting to see if, if that unfolds the way it looks like it will how will their season pans out in, in Europe as well I mean Claremont have set up their stall and that's why like the idea of the Ulster results being a positive kind of annoys me in a sense like Claremont were were so bad and mm-hmm. you've, you've allowed them to get a losing bonus point which could like if Claremont hammer everyone the way they did to Harlequins at home but if they're putting 50 points past teams and are able to get losing bonus points away you're not going to on your group like yeah. the, you can't like there was, and what happened there was that you know this is we'll talk about this as the year goes on but to me it really stressed the difference between like elite level teams for example a Leinster and a Connacht or an Ulster you look at Ulster who 
for all intents and purposes, they're way better and playing way better. And their back row is destroyed. Like a back row, you know, you're up against players like Gatto, Fritz Lee, and they are just annihilating them. Like I thought Jordy Murphy in particular was brilliant. And then, as well as that, but they take off their two. Marty Moore comes off. Jack McGrath's injured. He's not starting. So Eric O'Sullivan is after an hour. Both their props come off. You're bringing on a 21-year-old who's just out of the academy who's a fine player and will develop. But this is European rugby. So he under his post twice. He loses his mind. By a penalty try, you let them back into a game. Connaught's kick off against Toulouse, really good kick chase, pressure is really good, win an attacking scrum on the right, really good field possession, very first attacking opportunity. Peter McCabe is starting, loses his binds, penalty, eases pressure. And the harsh reality is that if Connaught had everyone at their disposal, if uh, Buckley was there, he wouldn't be on the field. You know, that, mm. that mistake doesn't happen. At the very end of the game, another pen, uh, scrum penalty allows uh, Toulouse to get on a bonus point and Connaught are cleared and Connaught right up to that point are, you know, they're leading up until Kobe Falatow's um, Simbin for the, the t- tip tackle which was I mean fully deserved but mm. they're, they're, like, that's just the elite level differences at this at this level of the game but it, the, 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 the overarching point is that the Champions Cup isn't doesn't have to carry the same importance it just doesn't for Everness and that's kind of like I think you just have to accept that at some element. Yeah, we're going to talk to uh, Alex Stokes about that in just a few minutes. There's a couple of things you want to talk to um, before we do. Um, just very briefly, actually, something that I haven't flagged to you before, but it dawned on me during this conversation and something I want to bring up. And, you know, I'm not one to have a go at Wales or Welsh rugby, as you know. I'm, yeah. you know, very fond of them. But the Ospreys, you know, putting out a second team, a, a second team is being generous against Saracens at the weekend, having already lost uh, a bonus point defeat to Munster um, in that group, giving up on Europe in week two, when, like, say all you like about the Pro 14 being weak or something, but what are they playing for then? If the Pro 14 isn't that isn't that big a deal, what is the point of the region that is the Ospreys if they, they fight all year to qualify for Europe and then don't even try once to get into Europe. It's one of the, it's like they do it in soccer as well, where you'll fight, you'll play in the Premier League all season so you can finish seventh and get into Europa League and isn't it a brilliant thing for the club to play in Europa League and then you go out and throw the games because you don't want to play on the Thursday nights. This is actually insane from the Ospreys, in, in, you know, and I don't get it. And I'll tell you, I just want to link it to something that's happening this weekend. The Barbarians are playing Wales this weekend. Wales do not need to have another international match so soon after the World Cup, a friendly club, whatever the the exhibition, whatever you want to call it, right? It's obviously a money spinner. But they've got a decent team out. They've got six or seven of the World Cup team starting again for Wales, like on the 29th or 30th of November, whatever it is. And I just can't get my head around the priorities of whatever's going on between the WRU and... The, whatever the regions and whatever uh, you know, whatever uh, influence they have, and whatever over their own decisions, I don't know. But I, there was we had we spoke when the the rumors came in about the breaking up of the you know getting rid of the Ospreys basically, and we were horrified the idea that like you know the Swansea wouldn't have uh, a professional rugby team or that uh, you know that like this wasn't something that was worth persevering with. But you have to look at it like at the moment and say, what's the point? Yeah, like, what is the point? If that's the effort that they're going to put in, what are they playing rugby for? Like? To, uh, to my mind, actually, the disregard that the Ospreys as an organisation have shown to their fans over the last two weeks has been a disgrace to their own fans. It's been like, I, I use that word literally, a, a disgrace. So you get a scenario where the Pro 14 launches on this week. They send a 
player and a like a coach put them in an impossible situation where they're not allowed to talk about whether or whether or not Alan Clark is the head coach. So there's rumours that he's been sacked. Um, it then comes out that they're not going to address that. They send two players, put them in an impossible situation where they can't address it. It sounds like the, the Ospreys have since come out and said that um, he's not the head coach, but under current structures that there's an employment issue that he may still be mm. in employment. It's that like a HR disaster yeah. that's coming off the what the performances that they put in in, in Europe as well I just like whatever about that we can we'll delve into that more as the season yeah, goes on exactly. but I, think I the, didn't really want to, to we didn't need the, to talk the, about it too much regards, just, yeah, the, it's almost a rant at the start of the show for me like it's just like you know a hot take as they do on the on our Valsley football show which you can hear on Mondays but I think it's just one of those things that just really really annoys me and we will probably talk to somebody about it as the weeks goes on and things sort of slow down a little bit over kind of the holidays in the, in the, in the rugby um in the rugby world. Uh, before we get to Bundyaki, we will talk about Joe Schmidt's book a little bit later on. I know you've been reading it and have some some uh, thoughts on it. We'll talk a little bit about what's going on this weekend and um, a little bit more. I did want to also just just briefly say that, you know, you talked about the Connacht game and the Ulster game there and kind of give pretty good analysis. I think Leinster is one of those matches that's probably not worth reviewing all too much I think Leinster were kind of set up for a dogfight that they didn't need to be and then didn't really kind of adjust on the day but I thought they were always in control of the game and Leon were poor um, yeah. I, I never thought Leinster weren't going to win that game yeah like it was uh, you know how many times can you ask the same question well Leon asked it a hundred times because, <laughs> yeah. and uh, like, very uh, disappointing like, actually for the team the, the new team that were uh, top, yeah, top of the you, pro 14 you, you kind of hope and I think if like if Leinster were 5% sharper like I I personally think that if Robbie Henshaw has a run of games and is not coming off the back of uh, injury blighted World Cup came back in was supposed to play against Connacht had to pull up for the start of the game finally gets a run he makes that he the break he made he makes a pass to James Lowe on the outside that's a try like I, I think Leinster they could have hammered him yeah like yeah. Le, as the season will develop Leinster that, that's like the 5% of sharpening that yeah. I just I just think like it's you know I I don't think it's he has that in his locker you know what I mean he's yeah. Larby Henshaw is capable of making that pass it's just the fact that I think it, given the circumstance that he finds himself in he didn't and that was it kind of epitomised the game for me so I, a lot of it was kind of brute force and Josh Van Flyer, who's been a phenomenon since mm. uh, and he actually won the few who emerged with credit from the World Cup I would have thought but them kind of doing what they do yeah. without ever really like I suppose maybe if you're not if you're not asked to progress through the gears you don't have to and like that's what Leinster have done I think there's a lot to be said for a team's ability to win ugly which yeah. you know, the Benetton game wasn't quite as bad but I still think oh, they, it never really clicked and no. the atmosphere in the day was a bit weird and like I just think that it's been a kind of a, a limpy start but it almost that's as much to do with the fixture list as the performances I think for Leinster as well you know having kind of Benetton as the first day and that's one of those matches that sounds easier than it is and then this game with Leon again I feel like that they were set up for a wintry dogfight and then that was the game they almost had to play and because it, it, they didn't get those couple of breaks yeah you know and, and, and I, I just really wouldn't read too much into it I thought they were in control and comfortable and did all the basics right and probably didn't have that little bit of as you said the 5% Munster is what I want to talk about though in, in a, like a tiny little bit more detail as I said I don't want to they're, they're a week ago now nearly so you don't want to dwell on them too much but that match was fantastic it was it was, oh, it was a proper amazing, European yeah. rugby night like it was home and park a half five on the Saturday when all the games should be played and it was really brilliant right and Racing turned up and were fantastic right they played very very well and were so dangerous with the ball that it, it, like they got those three tries in some ways almost out of nowhere which kind of made a, a, a very decent monster performance not seem that good however I do think because they got that sort of 
amazing try in the last minute and an incredible conversion from Hanrahan that we're overlooking the fact that Munster are big, big trouble in this group. Yeah. Because a home draw in a group that has Racing and Saracens in it is not good enough, like. Yeah, um, like, I, I, it's funny. Like the, at the time, I was like, they should have won that game. Watch, I watched it back and I thought it was a smash and grab and they were lucky to get oh, a draw. Oh yeah, but you still, could win, then, you still should win a game that you have a chance to win even if it is a smash and grab. Yeah, yeah. like I, I still, ultimately I think you're talking about Saracens have named a team for Bath. It's unbelievably strong, uh, which is, uh, will, uh, by most people time listening to this, that game will have been played. But uh, I, 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 the, this idea, if they only can play their English players for seven games a season or if the player management levels are what we let, are led to believe, then I would not be surprised if they do actually carry through with this. Uh, you have to take that with a pinch of salt, but if they do carry yeah. through, maybe taking a slightly more backseat approach to... For the away to, games to, anyway, to, yeah. yeah. So we'll see. Like we'll, the, That'll be very interesting once they name that team for, for Thomas Park. Yeah. Um, like the game itself was bizarre. It, I know you mentioned wrestling there, but I think it's like worth stressing, given the theme of this podcast, that uh, it's funny, isn't it, when you give a out half license to play with a scrum half who actually suits his style. Like I wonder would would any of ever learn if you watch Finn Russell play like that? Could Scotland maybe realise that maybe Great Lala isn't about that a lot the man the who yeah, you yeah. pair with a out half who wants to dictate? And you can actually see Teddy Abraham because constantly he's checking. Like you've got if one of them is going to be your decision maker and your your like your playmaker effectively, mm. and you have just have to prioritise that. And I think if you give Finn Russell the license to do that. He has demonstrated time and time again. He was again wonderful, yeah, in fairness. That yeah. he has the ability to do that. And then at the same time, you're seeing Munster set up like really creatively. Look, even still, you can see that they are trying to change attacking shape. And it's still, like sometimes it doesn't quite click. You see like uh, Peter Manny tries to tip, rush a tip on pass out to Ty Byrne and it gets knocked on and that doesn't go to hand. And then at the same time, you've got, you know, the Munster, what would have been considered pillars of their game, kind of disintegrating like a line out that, Dunnick Ryan just unlocked time and time again and a scrum that's under massive pressure but that goes back to our point about you know it, is David Coyne under that kind of pressure probably not but you go down to a guy who doesn't have a huge amount of exposure in, at yeah. European level and he, you know like he he struggles and that like, I think it's only natural that that's going to be the case uh, as for the results and looking ahead like yeah I think probably the, given the manner that it, it, of that missed drop goal you're always going to feel like this just got away like it really really did but I, at the same time I like it was probably a fair result mm. in the sense. I thought it was... No, I'm not saying it wasn't a fair result. I just think that the idea that it was a good result is, I is think probably is based too much yeah. on what we saw in the 80 minutes rather than what we know about the actual layout of the group, you know, and that you have to win your home games in a group this hard. And look, honestly, there'll be obituaries written if Munster don't get out of this group, but they'll be unfair. Yeah. You know, well, we have to see what happens in the games. But this is, especially if Saracens are there to play... This this is the hardest group in the history of the Champions Cup. Like. Yeah, what do you make of um, the crowd's reaction to Zevo? I thought it was great. I thought, I thought it was they, too, were, yeah. they were per- they were good with him after the game. And there beforehand, was no, there yeah. was no real hatred of Zevo. It out. was just it was it was give give. Uh, like Zebo is a, he's more of a character in that way he's a kind of a, a swag player he's absolutely supposed to be the enemy during the 80 minutes and I thought like we talked about this on it was a bit pantomime I liked it like yeah. it, was, it contributed to the atmosphere it was today, fantastic yeah. and they got a, they got a scrum out of it that wasn't the scrum because <laughs> the they all caught him for a four pass yeah. which was a beautiful pass a really great piece of skill from Zebo and he just looked and went oh. you know he, <laughs> forgetting that there's no camera on me at the moment but <laughs> it did the face but uh, I thought it was fantastic I thought 
talked about it on the build-up, actually, um, which you can listen to this week. Actually, when it was in regards to the football. We were talking to Kevin Doyle about uh, about uh, Real Madrid and, and PSG and being a little Neymar, bit too yeah. lovey-dovey with each other. And I was saying, like, you look at what Ryan and Zebo did. Duncan Ryan never stopped moaning that whole match. He was accusing the Munster players of all sorts, and he was probably right as well. Like I'm not, I'm not saying he was out of order, but he was telling that he was whinging to the referee about cynical play by a Matney and Stander and everything. And I thought this is class because he's totally going on the beer with them later, <laughs> and he's really good friends with them, and so is Zebo and everything like that. And they were professionals, and they were their enemy for eighty minutes, and it's exactly what sport should be, you know. Um, so I thought the crowd really played into that really well. Like I'm not like you know, Munster crowd get a lot of credit and they deserve a lot of it. But like you know, let's it can be a bit overblown sometimes as well. But I thought the atmosphere was great on Saturday night. Yeah, you know? I agree. And I also think like from a Munster perspective, like you'd, you'd you'd love to see them build. If Jeremy Lockin was a story at the start of the season, looking ahead to Edinburgh now, you'd love to see that kind of carry through and see we see Ben Healy's going to get yeah. a chance. Albie Matcherson, who that was his final game. I thought he was brilliant when he came on. Like the, yeah. I actually thought the. He was he sped, sped things up, and I think there's an ongoing question about Conor Murray. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, but the one thing I'd say about Matthewson is like, sorry, as in like his first ten minutes on the on the pitch kind of exposed a couple of the like current limitations of the way Conor Murray is playing, rather than maybe his yeah. actual form. Like he did very very well and, and changed the changed the point of attack a lot. But I thought that he was the one who kind of slowed down the. I thought Munster made a mistake in going for the drop goal, obviously as early as they did. But I also thought it wasn't even that. It was the it wasn't that they went for it with 40 seconds to go. It was that with a minute and a half to go, they, saw, they decided they were going for the drop goal. Where they had Rassing on the ropes, they were pushing forward, they were making the gain line every time. They had made it up to about seven, eight metres out. And I thought it was definitely Matthewson at one stage. He kind of turned it, waited, 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 let it be slow ball. And after that, it was half-hearted centering almost you know like an NFL team kind of taking the knee in the middle for the field goal they didn't go for it anymore and I thought that all the the next maybe four carries were weak and didn't have any kind of intent in them and I thought that was the big mistake because I thought that Rassing were on the verge of giving away a penalty and then you're 100% sure even if you trust Hanran even if you trust them and you pointed out to me he has a very good record at that he miskicked it there was you know maybe he was waiting too long for it in the end but even if you fully trust your out half, I think you have to play the higher percentages. Yeah, and that's... Like, I, I would totally agree with you, to be honest. Like, I, we talked about this in relation to the Baltimore Ravens taking two-point conversions in NFL as opposed to one point. And yeah. uh, we were talking about when are we going to see that analytical infiltration in rugby? Maybe it's already there and just hasn't leaked out to the media yet. And I think this is the kind of definitive evidence that it's not there like I do think that if you had somebody on the sideline crunching numbers and they were to say to you you know you're up against a team who have conceded on average 21 points um, so far this season you, you, so you're, you're, you're only at about average like it's, your chances of another score aren't that unlikely uh, they've already conceded 9 penalties in the game and you've got go forward ball that maybe you should control the ball keep trying to progress and if it gets to a stage where the clock's in the red you're not going anywhere you and need a yeah, goal because teams then, know when they're not going anywhere as yeah, well like, exactly yeah. and to be honest like that uh one of the most glaring things is the fact that not only did they try the kick, they tried the kick with enough time on the clock to allow Rassing to respond to it, which yeah. is insane. Which like, ended like, up being Munster having like, more like, time <laughs> and could have went down the other end on um, the giveaway penalty. So that was weird to, in itself. And then, as you said, like I actually uh, I heard um, Ron O'Gara on News Talk uh, during the week there talking about this, and he's a guy who obviously knows a bit about that. And he even said that uh, they, you don't want 
to be standing over it like too much time giving your kicking yeah. too much time don't have him standing back there dropping into the pocket and waiting 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 like that's not what you from a the biggest from, moment from, of his career from a outer perspective that's not what you want yeah. so yeah it was just mismanaged and like you know these are the fine margins that yeah. kind of make a, a difference to this level don't want to be blaming Hanrahan because he genuinely he did it was one of his yeah. best games for Munster yeah, and, and as much as that like he kicked really well and he got that conversion kick but don't let that be the story of it because what his story was he was a threat on like he was um, finding holes and it's, opening things up which is a now half that Munster have never really had yeah it's a, it'll be yeah. really exciting to see how he develops under Larkham that yeah. the, particularly as an out half I'm really looking forward to that we have to get to Ali Stokes we've gone late but Bundiaki he's uh, signed on three year contract I think is that a three year contract on top of the one he already has which brings him to the World Cup or is it three years from now That'll bring him up until the end of the 2022-23 season. So it's the first central contract that Connacht have ever had. Yeah. Um, so he, yeah. So like, that's the World Cup. Like that's it, the end of the season is the World Cup. There, I think, is it? He'll be well. He'll, no, the World Cup will be at the back end of the that next campaign. Season. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, but it is it is three years on top of what is um, yeah. a one so year be, contract that he has left. So it's four years, basically, more of Bundiaki Connacht. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is huge. Like, yeah. I th- uh, it's kind of great to see. Great to see it done. But like, just you know, uh, I think Connacht needed this to be a central contract, just in terms of from the perspective of needing one of their their talisman to stick around and to see that's done and him there and also. Um, we haven't spoken about Kieran Marmion since mm. he's also signed a contract. The two of them, I just think it's they're positive moves. Like it's what the province needed. And is Kieran Marmion second choice scrum half at Connacht now? Potentially, like Caelan Blade has been, yeah, from nowhere really. Like mm. he wasn't in. The, I, we did a post on a site. I'd say it was twenty four months ago, and I was picking the Irish, the best fifteen outside of the. It was twenty eighteen, picking the best Irish fifteen outside of the. Autumn International squad and I put Caelan Blade in at scrum half and got pilloried for it like why are you <laughs> picking this second string Connacht's uh, scrum half and since then his development at the time I was a huge fan of him and since then his development has only uh, yeah. you know excelled I think that's great to see like I thought isn't it great to see from just purely that they can have the ability where Connacht can say Jack out he's not playing well therefore Fitzgerald you're yes. coming on here you're, you're coming like Kieran Marion there's like a fire behind you here yeah. like that's I think maybe the problem with Conor Murray is that now if his form doesn't if continues to dwindle or doesn't hold up the drop off is considerable like you're talking about a really a hugely promising but unexperienced guy in Craig Casey uh, Nick McCarthy who's come down from Leinster and probably is unhappy with the current game time he's gotten right now or a guy who's come out of the AIL which is a brilliant story in Neil Cronin but like who one of them really needs to put up their hand and try and threaten Murray which I mean doesn't isn't that likely as opposed to you go down to you know, Caelan Blade is looking at Kieran he's like, I'm trying to get in an yeah. Irish squad just like you were. I think yeah. that's a great thing to see. No, you're absolutely right. You actually made the point, that my next point for me, which was that between, like, you know, what you mentioned about Carty, what you mentioned about uh, uh, um, Blade and, Blade and uh, Marmion is exactly where Connacht need to be. You need to be giving new contracts to a guy who might not be getting onto the team because you need your backup to be as good as your first guy. And it's a position they've never been in. No matter how good their first 15 has been in, the backups have never been there. And that's Connacht's next step. Exactly. You know, yeah. and their next step then is also to be making sure you're holding on to your stars and that's why are getting a central contract no matter who it is but to the like let's not forget that Munster tried to sneak in and get Bundiaki yeah, three, three years, years ago, ago yeah you know and like I remember it being a big de- a big, being like people even rolling their eyes when 
Connacht were the ones who got him in the first place because it's like you know this guy's too good for Connacht yeah. you know? we're kind of we're getting past that slowly all the time and we're getting to the stage where hopefully by the time Bundiaki's contract comes up again it won't be him but he'll be replaced and you know Connacht will be at the you know at the big table by yeah, that stage in terms of these contracts and these opportunities and that's I mean go back this is, we've come full circle here that's going back to my point at the very start like the you, you still you know if Ulster or Connacht get their best 15 on the field they are capable of competing with anybody it's the as I mentioned it's if you've got a couple of injuries a guy drops down how does your scrum hold up how does your set piece do does your defensive line struggle and that's the kind of the stuff that this we're moving towards that like you see a guy like Tom Farrell and how he's developed at Connacht you even the the kicky yeah, that he had at the time, he's and like weekend, yeah. and so to see that kind of stuff again is is encouraging. And I guess like if Connor and I are sitting down and they're saying, you know, who's in their centre? Is it Farland Bundiaki? Is Peter Robb? If he gets a kick on Kyle Goodwin, like suddenly options are a great thing. And I think the more that we can kind of develop that, and again, like this will kind of overlap with what we're talking to Ali about as well but that's also to the betterment of Irish rugby as well as well as being to the benefit of Connacht yeah you mentioned Ali there uh, you were talking to Ali Stokes earlier we talked at the start of the show about really a few concerns and oh, maybe fears is too strong a word about where the Heineken Champions Cup is going on the back of Claremont's you know underperformance in Belfast and a few other performances across the couple of weeks we've had of the tournament so far yeah, so basically we, I caught up with Ali just to see, like, does ultimately, from an outside perspective, does the Champions Cup have a credibility problem? All right, I'm delighted to be joined now by freelance rugby journalist Ali Stokes. Ali, how's the form? Hi, good, thanks. Yeah, nice, nice and cold over this end. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Um, Ali, when you look at the performance, particularly over the last weekend, the Champions Cup, and you look at the likes of Ospreys and Claremont, and even, you know, to a certain extent you can talk about the away performances of teams like La Rochelle as well. Like there is, it does seem like an escapable element that maybe this isn't as important as we in Ireland like to believe. I think there's always been a certain edge to, or certainly since I've covered rugby, that the Champions Cup has always seemed to mean more Irish sides. Now, I, I couldn't begin to explain why. You know, I, I'm English. I, I could speculate, but I wouldn't be able to give probably a true answer. Whereas I think, especially if you if you look at the English side and the French side, the domestic the domestic game is such a money ball thing where if you finish two positions lower than your owner wants you to, you could get the sack. You know, you don't have to be in relegation zone. So I think that's why maybe the Champions Cup isn't, doesn't seem to be as important to those sides because it's almost like as big a fish to fly, even though it's supposed to be a, the Champions Cup is supposed to be the, the ultimate competition. And as you look at the Ospreys and Welsh rugby as a whole, I mean, I think there it's more just a case of Welsh rugby, club rugby isn't in a great place. I think it's it, it kind of, that's more indicative of where they are as opposed to what they think the competition. I'm sure if they were, you know, in, in, in a healthy position, maybe something like the Irish clubs, they'd, they'd be going for a full ball as well. And the Scottish sides, without standing too disingenuous, they've, they've always struggled a little bit to, to compete with the other nations because of the size of their, of their player pool. And, you know, they've only got two professional teams. Um, that is changing now a little bit. You've got Edinburgh and Glasgow now getting better and better. Uh, I think we saw last year how, how good Edinburgh were. It's showing they're not in the... Uh, in the comp this year but I I think in terms of the English and French side of things the domestic game is a money ball and it, 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 which is a shame because you know, the Champions Cup should be the epitome of, of, of a club rugby in Normans but it should be the, the top composition It's interesting you say that and we might get into from a team's perspective in a second and we actually had um, 
Charlie Morgan on the podcast a couple of months ago and he kind of explained to us because of the kind of the cyclical nature of domestic rugby in England that you know it will always be the case that the premiership is the priority it just has to be because of how competitive it, it is inherently but away from mm-hmm. that for a second like from a from a fan's perspective I'm kind of curious as to what your thoughts on why it may, doesn't seem to register quite as much like I just go back to the the Munster when we were over at the the semi-final last year when Munster played Saracens and the away travelling sport was massive whereas you look at the Saracens support that was there for that game and it was quite minimal if, if, if we're honest like it, does the Champions mm. Cup capture the imaginations of the the average maybe English or French fan the way it does for, for Irish fans I think I think if we look at the Saracens the Saracens thing there they despite how impressive they are as a team they're actually not a massive they haven't got a massive following Yeah, I mean the Champions Cup definitely captures the imagination of fans probably about the same amount as the premiership, if we're honest. Whereas, whereas uh, from my point of view, it seems like in Ireland, it's, it's you know, different. The Champions Cup is, is, is more attracted. You know, you, it's almost like, okay, domestic rugby is great, but oh, Champions Cup is fantastic. Whereas, in, in, certainly in England, it feels like it's, it's kind of quite an even playing field. And, and I think a lot, a lot of, <laughs> maybe in the last couple of years, it hasn't been as successful for English clubs. So maybe we're, we're, we're holding back our expectations. <laughs> <laughs> and and even if we kind of move on from that a small bit, like the this this I think structurally the competition is is an interesting conversation. And I know you touched off the the Ospreys situation, for example. Like if you look at that pool now, it you've effectively got a situation where Ospreys two games in are going to not give up is the wrong word but it, it certainly will not be a priority for them because of their qualification chances whereas say for example if we had um maybe a 16 tournament a 16 team tournament and the, you'd put a four as opposed to five and maybe try to structure that like i wonder is there a way to design to capture the competitiveness that will you know inherently these pools are going to be skewed by teams who've lost their opening two games i'm wondering is the competition structure leaning itself towards maybe being as effective as as it could be well, I think I think if we start bringing down the numbers too much, you, you can almost be a little bit reactive to the fact that there's certain certain teams and countries are struggling. Yeah, Wales being Wales being one. Um, I think you've got, we've got to be careful that I think if you if you kept doing that, you know, how how small do you go? How how far does that go to to make them competitive? And how how long do you give a certain amount of you know, teams to to boot it out? I mean, it's it, it's not that long really since the format was changed. So I think I think it's probably a couple of years too early to say the format would need changing, and I think it's just it's just a weird situation at the moment where I think particularly it it hurts the competition a lot. The Welsh sides aren't in a great place, and as soon as soon as they um, they can maybe get a foot up and get themselves a bit more stable across both competitions, the better. I think the, the French we it, it's so cliche it's almost not worth mentioning because listeners will be up in arms, but they, 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 we know they don't travel. And we know the second, the second it doesn't look like they've got a real chance of winning, they'll, they'll, they'll pull out. And, and English sides are moving more towards that as well. I think we're seeing more, more of a similarity between between the two leagues now. But as far as the structure, I don't. I think it might be a little bit early to, to think about changing it quite yet. You know, you mentioned the similarities between the the, the, the 
similarities that might be coming more apparent between English sides and and French, particularly in terms of of traveling. Like if we if we park the Saracens conversation for a second, I think that's a unique case, particularly given the the salary cap uh, situation and what they have said about whether or not they would prioritize Europe and whether or not you agree. Or, I mean, believe that. But if if we park Saracens for a second, because they generally have been very competitive in Europe, uh, like is there a a reason I, I understand it's the case but is there a reason why English clubs have kind of flattered to deceive at times in Europe I think personally I think there's a massive thing in the whole mentality behind it I think the fact that, that the Irish clubs and, and some of the French clubs when they're in the mood um, get up get up to the game mentally that mental edge is the difference because it seems to mean more to them and I think with the, with the English clubs the English players, because because the Premiership and the Champions Cup tend to almost blend into one. It's, it's almost this this grind. I think it's harder mentally to keep going in each week, and, and it's hard to step up a level in the Champions Cup when there is so much on the line in the Premiership. But again, I keep mentioning it for, for me that comes back to money and the financial pressures that you get. And like I said, it's not easy. you don't have to be worried about relegations. We're worried about your job. I mean, look look at Rich Cockrell at Leicester. Look at what happened at Bath over the years. It's it, I, I, I don't think there's a mental capacity at the Champions Cup level. Um, this side. And I wonder, I, I, if, if you saw a ring-fenced premiership, I reckon that, that might change a little bit. But I think as long as as long as long the money is so so big in those two leagues, uh, compared to the, sort of the more the union-controlled peripheral team sides, I think it's going to remain that way. Yeah, and then I suppose it kind of inc- that encompasses the conversation about the Pro 14 and maybe the competitive that Irish teams face there versus the situation in England. Like you look at it, the Munster team, for example, that they're going to put out this weekend, and you've got a, a very promising, but a, ultimately an academy out half getting a start this weekend. Whereas, I mean, you, you don't have that luxury in, in England. I guess like it just because of the structure of those competitions, whatever, but structurally the formats for the Champions Cup, it just will always lend itself that the Premiership is going to be a more pressing priority. Yeah, yeah. It, well, exactly that. And I think it's also, you, you, you can get knocked out pretty quickly in the Champions Cup, whereas with the Premiership, you can keep going and keep going. And I think that, again, the luxury is in the, within the Champions Cup is that if you have a wide enough squad, if you have a enough enough money and and B enough of a of a squad depth. So, uh, talking about English clubs here, I think that plays a huge huge role on, on how hard you go in the Champions Cup. And I, think, I think if we look at Northampton Saints, they have not had great depth over the years, and since Chris Boyd's come in and since he's given the youngsters a go, all of a sudden they have the depth to give both comps a go. Um, it's been a, it's been a bit of a frustration of of, uh, of mine personally is that I don't think there's been enough true squad strengthening in English rugby. I think we're seeing a few sides now who genuinely can compete. Uh, I think maybe that might be a little factor as well in there. But, um, I think genuinely it's just, you know, it's that whole conversation of it's your bread and butter. I mean, I was, I, and in my background, I, I came through when I was younger as, as a sports rehabilitator and I spent two months at Bath Rugby. And I, and I was I was told by my mentor, uh, I was from day one, okay, listen, here's how this works. Premiership, bread and butter. This is the pressure. This is when it's on for us. And you know, to be to be telling that to a to an intern, a nineteen year old intern is is huge. It, it, it kind of paints the picture of really what what it what it's like in rugby compared to perhaps um, the the Celtic nation. Can we elaborate on that point for for a second? The point that was like from an Irish perspective, if you look at squad depth, I think a testament to that is a guy like uh, Conor Fitzgerald, the out half from Connacht, who doesn't get 
an opportunity with the Munster Academy, uh, uh, but but because of the IFU system and the fact that they kind of prioritise developing Irish talent, goes but plays back up the Jack Carthy, ends up coming on and kicking a, a last gasp penalty to win it against Montpellier, and then starts against Toulouse and gets that opportunity. Whereas there's obviously because it's not the Premiership isn't you know their priority isn't the, to the betterment of English rugby that maybe you wouldn't have the same kind of squad development or there's a bit more uh, would it be fair to say a bit more shortism about their decision making particularly when it comes to kind of developing squads. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like I said, that, that's exactly what's been my frustration over the last couple of years. There's been way too much short-termism in, in terms of signings. We, again, we're seeing a couple of coaches like Boyd and Pat Lamb and, uh, and obviously Saracens. They may have financial indiscretions, but how they manage their junior players is, is exceptional. Um, I think it, it's, as you say, it's that being union-controlled, whether partially or entirely, it, the fact that you can... In, in the Pro 14, there will be times where, where the IRFU will say, okay, can you, can you just rest this player because we're looking at minutes and you know, we want him exposed. We want to make sure he's fit and exposed more to the higher level stuff, which is smart planning. And it, it, it's just different to the Premiership. It's not worse. It's not better. It's just different. And I, I just think that difference does lend itself more towards, towards the Champions Cup in, in a way that the Premiership doesn't. And it, it's, you know, we'll sign Lima Sapuaga because you know we haven't been we're developing an offence at a certain club, and it, that, that's just one example of the kind of issue I think has been plaguing the country would be over the last few years. And then I guess it's at this point of a conversation where you would kind of naturally move towards you know this we've obviously established the problem. What is the the solution? But kind of maybe to my mind maybe there isn't actually a solution like maybe the solution is that this is the kind of the cruel reality of of rugby right now this is the kind of the modern game and ultimately you just have to accept that the this is the regard the Champions Cup is going to be held in by by French and English clubs because it's just the way it is like maybe maybe we can't force teams to make take it more seriously and ultimately the kind of from an Irish perspective particularly the solution is just to kind of accept that this is the, the lay of the land Mm. Yeah, I, I, th- I think if you're probably right there. At a certain point, you just have to accept it. I mean, unless some kind of billionaire comes in and decides he's going to buy the uh, the RFU and then in turn buy the Premiership and turn it union control, something else happens in France. It, it, it is just the way it's going to be. Um, I think the only way, you know, without a drastic change to English club structure, something more in line with the, with the um, with the RFU and the WRU. Um, you just have to kind of hope that people like uh, your boys and your, and your Pat Lambs are, are, are kind of are found a bit more often, um, and that they just tend to, you know, see that wider picture of oh, actually, look, we can we also don't have to break the bank on on all these overseas signings if if we have an exceptional um, development program for our younger players. Yeah, hopefully we won't let that uh, uh, hinder our enjoyment for the for the tournament, particularly in terms of rugby. Ali, thanks many for talking to us today. Absolute pleasure, anytime. Ali Stokes there talking to Morris about the credibility problem or or not in the in the Heineken Champions Cup. You can read Ali's work um lots of places really. The Rugby Mag being one of them, the Telegraph, others. Um, but brilliant stuff there. Really, really enjoyed that chat. Morris, one thing I actually wanted to sort of talk about a little bit, it's kind of related to this, but do you have any fear that this isn't a go at BT or in any way a plug for Sky or anything like that? I just think that more people in Ireland especially have Sky Sports. I think that BT last year was part of the air sport pack that a lot of people will have through air broadband, through getting air sport for things. And I think in Ireland, me and you know this more than that. Like, I mean, we talk about this all the time. It's one of my bugbears is that I'm a GA fan. I'm a football fan. I'm a rugby fan. I'm a boxing fan. Yeah. Do you know, I, I, I'm a sports fan. I, I, that's the way I grew up. I wasn't one or the other. That's 
the case with some that's the i find the silent majority of irish sports fans are like that you know i think a lot of people who listen to this won't just listen to a rugby show i think that's a, that is you buy maybe air because you want to get the ga on a saturday night but you'll watch munster signing cup game or you'll watch leinster signing cup game you might buy um sky sports for the premier league but you'll um also brilliant we have the Heineken cup at the weekend you know yeah. i'm not sure that there's a huge amount of reason if you have say virgin on the air sport pack now to get the champions league that there's a specific reason other than rugby to be getting bt in and i think that it's going to affect the competition because grand the rugby fanatics are going to have it they're going to watch it they're going to see every game they're probably going to watch eight games over the course of the weekend not just the irish games for everybody else it's already a problem that it's not on terrestrial TV except for one game a week. That wasn't even an Irish game this week. Like, you know, that, that was... Um, Saracens Ospreys. Saracens Ospreys, which was a disgrace of a match. Like, you know, but like it'll be Irish games some weeks. But the other provinces just slipping, slipping off the radar, not making as big an impact as it used to. Like, we still have those great nights in Thoman Park and everything like that, but I just wonder how long it lasts for if the general public aren't watching. Yeah, it's like I. it's a really interesting conversation and I guess... Like there's a couple of different layers to it. Like I, I actually a more pressing issue is just the fact that it, it doesn't have enough of a presence on terrestrial TV. I think like of to be like, and I, 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 there's enough evidence for that. Like you see in England, the difference between the Champions League viewership figures. Um, funny enough, which is also like that's not unique to BT. It's just the fact that it's pay per view versus bad national broadcaster, and that's like, ultimately the problem. Is that you look at the Rugby World Cup, for example, in South Africa, kind of recognise that and decide to allow the TV deal is basically ignored for the final for the, for the final and they allow it to be mm. uh, aired on you know their national broadcaster purely from that perspective that they understand the, what that can do for the game and I guess like it's even more exaggerated when you come down to something like as you mentioned BT where it probably because of the current existing broadcasting deals it is, appears to a real niche section of the Irish sports fan and that'll feed into this idea of the credibility problem that the competition has at the same time like I don't think it's the main problem that the tournament has like I think if the tournament was as good as we hoped it would be it wouldn't be as big a deal and I think you would attract people to it it just feeds into the problem when you come yeah, off the weekend double like, edged sword exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah 100 years ago now and I mean closer to 100 than 1 you know we had I was working on off the ball long long time ago and Eamon Ryan was the minister at the time for communications and he had proposed a bill to make the Heineken Cup free to air and he came into the studio and I remember Owen McDevitt was presenter off the ball at the time and had a very really really in-depth conversation Owen had done a lot of research he did a really really good job where he basically tore Eamon Ryan's proposal apart and it didn't last much longer after that it kind of disappeared and basically the idea was which i still think was right at the time was that the heineken cup and what it had done for irish rugby and done for the provinces couldn't survive without its tv deal and because of that irish rugby structure with the four provinces and what they can they can sustain well being yeah. in this country couldn't survive. i'm looking back on that now like i like would have been adamant i i, I did a lot of the research myself for you know and now I'm not so sure. I, I, I think you maybe go too far. And there's, there's, there's really, really good work done across like the four or five really, really brilliant journalistic pieces on what, the game, what has happened to the game of cricket since it went basically to Sky in the 90s and then more or less exclusively away from terrestrial TV yeah. since 2005. That was the, the famous Ashes was the last uh, terrestrial TV test series. 
And it's been disastrous. And I don't know if rugby is following along that. What you still have is the Six Nations and the World Cup on terrestrial TV is really, really important, you know. But for these clubs... There is still that money issue. It's not going away. That is still a real thing. Irish rugby still needs to survive and it still needs these big tournaments. And that's why we had to compromise when the English and French clubs were looking to pull away. We couldn't stand the ground because we couldn't afford to lose it. But at the same time, I, I do worry about out of sight, out of mind. And if people aren't looking at BT every week, then are they really... Like, you know, if, if a Heineken Cup match happens in a forest and nobody's around to see it... Did it even happen at all? Yeah, and I, like, and I do. The thing is, I do agree with you, but at the same time, can I actually show you a clip? I'm, I'm analysing the game for a piece that go up on site. I know this doesn't lend itself to, <laughs> to a podcast platform whatsoever, but it's just it's a one second ruck from the Ulster Claremont game. So look at this ruck here, and just look at uh, this. Is the pen- for anybody who watched this game, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the first penalty after half time. Look at the penalty that Claremont can see it here. Look, just look at this for sheer stupidity. Yeah, right. So number five just walks around the back of the ruck, which is clearly in. It's not even nearly out. It's not even available for the scrum half, and just tries to pick up the ball. So my point, right, about showing you that is like when it's a compromised product, it kind of doesn't matter where it's on. If the yeah. product was better than that, I don't think like that. So I, I do agree with you on the point you're making, but at the same time, I think the product when the product itself suffers, it doesn't matter if it was even if it was on Terrestrial TV. It doesn't matter when the product is like that, and yeah. that, I think that is as. Like can't disagree with you. Friday night is a big game that was on, and you're watching that, and you you couldn't help but have your opinion. I think if you're watching Saturday night and you're watching Munster and exactly, Racing, yeah. I think you're going to say the country is missing out by not having this. Is like yeah. the old, the very old days when, like, I mean, Munster Rugby for all their faults, and there are hundreds of them. R- R- Munster Rugby was built on the Saturday afternoon with. Tom McGurk and George Hook standing in the middle of the old <laughs> park looking like they were going to be rumbled by the, by the surrounding fans freezing to death and wishing they were anywhere but but they were all the magic days they were the Gloucester miracle game and so on and so forth and you know they like it's a long time since that yeah. let's face it but that is where the myth nearly on a national sense nearly came from yeah no absolutely we're gone off on one um, I hope you enjoyed the more sensible conversation uh, that Morris had with Ali Stokes and the probably less sensible and a bit more wild conversation that he just had with me. But there's some other little things to talk about. Mainly Joe Schmidt has an autobiography. You've been reading it. I've been kind of warned off it in a way, actually. I haven't really seen, I haven't really read too much of it. Is it as bad as they say? Um, doesn't have an index, I heard. Yeah. Eamon Dunphy was given out about that. Apparently, <laughs> it's mortal failing. Um, the, just because... A book isn't what you want. It doesn't mean it has no value, right? So what I think what was wanted by everybody, um, rugby fans in particular, was an explanation for the World Cup and a dive into that. And this book isn't that because it came, the timing of it is wrong, really. It's too close to the World Cup. You weren't going to get that sort of reflection that was necessary for us to get anywhere near that. So if that's what you're looking for, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. It, is, it falls well short of that. Um, if you're looking for some insights into coaching and Joe Schmidt's thinking of the game, you'll probably get that. Now, like, I don't know, I don't necessarily agree that the book's biggest failing was 
um, that didn't have a ghostwriter, as has been argued in some places. I think by journalists uh, who would have loved to be the ghostwriter. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, like, and, uh, I do think you get I'm being facetious. You get the reason that for that right is that when Joe Smith sits down to an interview or with a ghostwriter, you get a big insight into him about, like, for example, one. This is a really trivial detail, but he doesn't. His parents by name are never included in the book. Um, he did an interview in Sunday Independent last week with Brendan Fanning, who asked him about that, and so you, you get an insight into that. Joe Smith, the person. Now, Joe Smith, the rugby coach reveals all in the book so you get that aspect of him but you don't get anything into that which I guess and like ultimately and we know this from working in sport humans are more interesting like real life stories are going to be more interesting and you miss out on that and that leaves you feeling kind of shortchanged as you're reading the book despite the fact that there probably is a lot of value in you know he talks about how he formed his the his understanding of the breakdown and talks about ultimately kind of um, it functions like the heartbeat of a rugby game and you kind of learn more about how he coaches body so for a super stuff. nerd like you there is value this to is yeah. class like there, there, yeah there if, is if you once you realise you're not going to get something change your mindset a little bit and then read it for what it is yeah so like you will get you get stuff out of it from that, that aspect of definitely that, yeah. like definitely now at the same time I, I, you do there, you can't get away from that frustration that it doesn't you know reveal more but at the same time like i don't think that's a a, a ghost reader, ghost writer necessarily fixes that like i've read hundreds no, of terrible also, he, rugby he, yeah, books like, without, like, some of the worst of the rugby books some like, of yeah. our think of some of the books without like paul gallagher wrote a book without a ghost writer and it was great so i don't think a ghost it, it, the, the idea that a ghost it all hinges on the fact that he didn't have a ghost writer it depends how much he wants to give away exactly and joe schmidt's an immensely private man who probably couldn't resist writing the book because you know, there's a payday there, and there's, but he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, life, and so you know? I, yeah, ex- exactly. Like, and I know that um, a couple of writers who've done interviews and recently actually made pitched for the book and didn't get it. Yeah. And I imagine that that's probably kind of frustrating when he doesn't like. All the while, he kind of has a a touchy enough relationship with access in the first place, and then even after he leaves the Irish, it's like it's you know it's the one final shot across the bow, and he won't even give you that. <laughs> you yeah, know? I suppose. And, yeah, and yeah. So I can I appreciate it from that perspective as well. George Smith, the character, you do get some really insights, good insights into that and how he can kind of consider it. Like the one thing that my biggest takeaway from the book, from and I've devoured every single interview he's done on every platform. Yeah, he's a fascinating uh, person. Is the the man is like a control freak to the nth degree like when he, to the extent where in these interviews when he goes into the uncontrollables the acts that are con- uncontrollables not only is, do they drive him demented like he is so frustrated by the uncontrollable aspects like weather decisions yeah but he actually uses the uncontrollables as justification for his minute focus on the controllables but that that, that it, it kind of ha- it's this double-edged sword where he's conscious of the fact that there's certain stuff he can't control so because of that he really doubles down on what he can control and maybe it becomes a tad overbearing is the yeah uh, and i think he probably kind of would admit to that now but he he, he really really is adamant that w- the reason he does this is because there's so much stuff that is outside of his control and he, he also he's very fixated on the idea that he has to control it because ultimately he bears responsibility as a head coach. So maybe, like, that's why I wonder, it'll be very interesting to see what George Smith does next. And I wonder, would his next job, would it suit him more to be an assistant coach, to have that high level of detail and to have that reign, but without having the pressure that it ultimately is to be responsible for, for it all, that it's all going to fall down on top of you. And that maybe that allows you to be a bit more a bit more lax about your approach and kind of let things develop a bit more naturally. I just wonder, it'd be very interesting to see, yeah. you talk, you hear about the figures he's been offered in France 
for, like if he if France want him involved um, from a coaching perspective, it'll either be in a club or it'll be in an assistant role. He, the, the French clubs won't accept a non-Frenchman as their head coach, particularly going into a World Cup year that's going to be in France. So I, I just think it'll be interesting to see where where Joe Schmidt goes next. But from that perspective, like there's there's stuff you get out of for, out of the book now for twenty five euro. Like twenty five euro is a steep price for a book. So I'm not sure if it's worth that to the everyman. But if you do want that kind of insight into his thinking around tackle uh, technique, his thinking around the, the breakdown, his, his ultimate, his philosophy on rugby, you'll get that. The book will give you that. Yeah. It won't give you maybe the stuff that the sports fan necessarily wants and that's disappointing. But I don't yeah. think that like, just because it doesn't give you that, I don't think the book should be dismissed as having no value. And I would also say that not everybody has to give us that. You that's know, and just, I, yeah, I, I, I think there is a, there, there's a virtue in privacy in this day and age that like, you know, most people are willing to give it up um, and some people aren't, you know, and look, if you don't want to buy the book because you're not going to get that stuff completely understand i'm probably in that category to be honest but i also don't begrudge it to him not giving it to us yeah exactly you know, like yeah. um one other thing i was going to say now us in the media morris we're not necessarily known for being able to see the wider angle past ourselves <laughs> I, I do feel like there's been a lot of commentary on the media chapter uh, a lot of negative commentary from surprisingly people in the media now i would wonder whether uh from your point of view again being someone in the media maybe not the most unbiased uh, observer but um would you suggest that people in the outside world the people listening to this podcast they might want to read it will be slightly less interested and disappointed in that chapter than some of the people who've been tweeting and writing about it that do work in the media uh yeah absolutely like i know i i kind of i uh object to my, my Clarification as being one of the people that might have an issue with it because I'm not on. I'm not a member of the Rugby Writers Union. The only uh, media things I have with George Smith was through press conferences. I never sat down for one on ones with him or anything like that. I wasn't. You know, he goes into the book into his dealings with the media where he had a journalist uh, ring him about a story. They had a story about Brad Thorne joining Leinster. They rang him. He said, will you please wait? I'll give you more details about it, but we haven't confirmed it yet and it might fall through if it leaks before it's been confirmed that he's leaving Japan. That journalist waited. It was, uh, again, we mentioned Bernard Fanning earlier in Sunday mm. Pennant. It was him. So he ran that story later on the, that year. And that's the way, and now Joe Schmidt in an idea scenario would like all dealings to go like that. That's it. I would like to fold it. The harsh reality is that's not the way the media works. Like there's, you've got way more pressing stuff. This story could easily be picked up elsewhere. And sometimes if a journalist has something clar- confirmed and knows it, he just has to go with it. And you know, Joe Schmidt will obviously rage about that, particularly when it comes to yeah. teams and stuff. The, the only thing that I noticed particularly about the uh, media chapter is that it, it goes back to this idea of Joe Schmidt's obsession with control. And I think that like w- once you understand that aspect of his character or, or at least get an insight into it you will understand so much more of how he approaches all the other stuff even if you're critical of how he does it mm. like the it's uh, at his at his core that is it just seems to be a, a fundamental tenant of his being yeah. that he has a, a real drive for control and when he doesn't have it uh, things kind of escalate yeah. from there oh I'm obviously only messing like I mean they're well in within the right reply as well of course to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. a chapter about the media I just Actually, that I, stuff I, is interesting more too, joking like, yeah. that I think that was like you know I suppose it, that's something that I don't think the whole world is going to be as worried about in the, I, the book I, I, as I, possibly the people who but look again if, you, if it feels like you're taking personal digs you're entitled to respond and you know I don't think Joe's been the easiest guy to deal with especially in the last couple of years yeah you know? and like uh, as, as much as Joe Schmidt is or 
the media entitled to criticize Joe Smith, he's entitled to respond. Like, and that's yeah. and you know, you don't have to agree or disagree with either of them. No. Just, they're allowed to have that exchange. That's why we should probably close down social media so eventually the loop has to end. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. uh, maybe it has. Joe's not on social media, as far as I know. Anyway, unless he's unless he's one of the eggs. Um, um, knocking around come here will we call it a day because it's been a longer show than we expected for a kind of a, a throwaway the first end time. of the first couple of weeks of the <laughs> of the Champions Cup um, show there are Pro 14 games in this week I mean Morris mentioned that like Ben Healy's making his first start for Munster I think that's an interesting one I saw him a couple of times in the under-20s last year between him and Harry Byrne I thought we were fairly well stocked at the out half of out halves of the future Harry Byrne you will have already seen play for Leinster this year now Healy's making it in it's great to see that Grand Slam winning team starting to kind of make an impact on senior rugby be very interesting one to watch over the course of the year lots of other games too Heineken Cup's not that far away around the corner as well we will be back with you next Tuesday Tuesday afternoon mark it down your diary going to happen um but also there's lots more podcasts you can listen to the build up if you search balls.e podcasts or the build up on balls.e we've got lots there including kevin doyle and jason quigley on the show this week um lots more as well the balls.e football show we'll be back with you on monday we'll be back with you on tuesday and we'll chat to you then